0: To Mark chapter 2. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 17. um, And it's the story of a man named Levi. And so um, I'm going to read. And as I read, follow along with me. So Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. He, that is Jesus... "...went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, um, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, "'Follow me.' And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him." Father, we're incredibly thankful for this morning, and there's so many things we can be thankful for, friends, family, this church community, Um, even the kind of privilege we have in living in San Diego and all the things you provide for our physical well-being. But Father, we are mostly thankful that you've provided for our spiritual well-being in that many of us here are currently, the reality of our lives is that we identify with Jesus Christ. And so as we read um, about Jesus, as we explore the life of Jesus, in especially specifically when it comes to his interaction um, with Levi and the tax collectors and sinners and all of those who were the outcast of society back then, may we be reminded that you are still in the business of seeking and saving those who are lost. And because you're still doing this, you've invited us to be part of your mission here in this city. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, So, uh, last time um, in the Gospel of Mark, what we looked at was Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders. Uh, Mike Portland was here, who I love so much, and he did a fantastic job um, helping us um, understand um, the fact that Jesus is all about seeking and saving the lost, but not only that, but providing for the physical and spiritual needs of people. And so last time, we looked at how Jesus healed a crippled man um, and how he kind of came um First, for the first time, came face to face with the religious leaders. Um, because at that time, you know, last Sunday, uh, what we looked at was um, Jesus was going about teaching, and there were um, these friends who had a friend who was crippled, and they kind of did all they can to get him to Jesus. And the only way they could get him to Jesus was kind of lower him through the roof. <laughs> it was amazing. What a story. Um, and so we looked at the And we kind of were reminded how um, there is this kind of grace and mercy God provides for those who are desperate. And so this is going to continue. Um, and so if we look at verse 513, what we're told is that Jesus, after that situation, verse 13 tells us that he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. So after performing miracles and teaching powerfully in Capernaum, Jesus goes back to the shores okay, of the Sea of Galilee where he called his first disciples. And like many a-list celebrities of our modern culture, Jesus' fame had reached the point where everywhere he went, people and crowds would follow him, okay? And when the crowds gathered around him, um, he didn't ignore them, and he didn't tell them to go away, um, and he didn't take selfies with them, I'm sure, if they were like mobile devices back then. People would want to take selfies with Jesus and post it on their social media, kind of trying to apply it to our modern day. But you can imagine what was happening. Crowds are gathering around him. He's not telling them to go away. He's not ignoring them. And what he's doing is that as soon as the crowds gather, he takes the opportunity to teach them about who he is and the kingdom of God. Jesus was a rabbi. He was also a teacher, And just like the rabbis of his day, most of the context or places in which they taught people were outdoors, okay? Um, On a mountain or the side of a road or in this case, along the edge of a sea. That is where, just try and picture it, that is where Jesus is teaching these people. The more the crowds came... The more he ministered to them, and the more he ministered to them, the more he gained a reputation of being an excellent teacher and miraculous worker. Like Jesus was a brilliant, brilliant teacher. Think of like the most impactful preacher, or the most eloquent, or um, the most artful preacher. TED talk or communicator you've ever heard okay and compare them with Jesus they will pale in comparison with Jesus Jesus was an excellent communicator and it wasn't just how he said things it was what he said that made him so compelling And at times so controversial. So it's no surprise that everywhere he went, hundreds of people followed him to hear him teach and observe him perform miracles. Verse 14 says that as he passed by, he saw a man. This fella was called Levi. We're told he was the son of Alphaeus and that he was sitting um, at the tax booth. And as soon as Jesus sees Levi, he moves to engage with Levi and says to him, Levi, hey, you, follow me. Without hesitation, Levi accepts the invite, leaves his booth, and gives his life to following Jesus. Along with Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Levi becomes the most recent addition to Jesus' band of followers. And this, listen to this, this decision by Jesus, right, to call and invite a tax collector to be one of his disciples would have raised many eyebrows. And it's likely even the disciples, when they saw Jesus and heard Jesus invite this tax collector to be one of his followers, they would have been like, Jesus, like, what are you doing? why are you like uh, inviting this tax collector to be part of our little band of um, disciples what's going on why is this this is why in Jesus' day tax collectors were one of the most hated people in our society okay they were more hated than the IRS and people like that they, they were they really were okay They made ridiculous amounts of money at the expense of others. And Levi was a tax collector. And we know this because he was sitting at the tax booth when he first met Jesus. And these booths were situated at intersections. And what would happen is that these booths would collect tolls and tariffs and customs for the Roman government, all right? You guys know all this toll stuff and tariffs and everything like that, right? And just imagine that. That was what it was like. And these tax collectors would sit in it, and if anybody wanted to gain entrance into a new and next region, they would charge them. And they wouldn't just charge them the normal toll fee. What these tax collectors would do was charge a fee on top of it And the fee on top of it wasn't this fixed rate. Most of the time they would con people and they would charge more than they should. And so tax collectors not only made a lot of money, um, but they were hated by the Jews. And so if you were a Jewish citizen and you became a tax collector, you would be viewed as a shark and even a traitor. You would be stripped of your Jewish identity and your social status. Even your membership for your local synagogue would be revoked. Worst of all, your family would kind of disown you and anyone else who befriended you would be viewed as unclean. Being a tax collector had many financial benefits. Lots of money, but it came At a cost. Why was there such animosity towards tax collectors? David Garland, in his commentary on this, says he helps us with this. He says tax collectors, like I've mentioned, were renowned for their dishonesty and blackmail. They habitually collected more than they were due, did not always post up the regulations, and made false valuations and accusations. He concludes by saying, tax officials were hardly choice candidates for discipleship since most Jews in Jesus' day would dismiss them as those who craved money more than respectability or righteousness. So tax collectors back then were known as dishonest, corrupt, and greedy individuals, We're not certain, okay, if Levi was as dishonest as most of his peers. We're not sure. But the fact that being a tax collector meant that you worked for the Roman government was enough to make him an outcast of the Jewish society, And this was because for many years, and you guys know this, the Roman Empire had oppressed the Jews, they were the enemy, and for a Jew like Levi to collect taxes for them was like, uh, just like think about it, a member, I was doing some research, just like a member of the Crips, okay, gang, right, selling drugs for blood, right, just kind of weird. And she asked, no, I was just doing some research. I was like, Crips, Bloods, what are they about? And I got into all, like, watching videos about initiation and how, like, scary all of that was. But just imagine one individual from a rival gang, right, supporting, right, and selling drugs for the other gang. Just crazy. And so this is how they viewed them. This is how they viewed Levi and the other tax collectors who were Jews, and they were collecting money Right? For the oppressor. He would have been wealthy, but he was hated by his own people. So for Jesus, who is considered a Jewish rabbi to exchange words and engage with a tax collector was controversial. But to go a step further and invite a tax collector to become one of his disciples was even more controversial. And his actions ended up causing quite a stir and the public outrage among the Jews. And as... So last two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' interaction with a leper. You guys remember that. Lepers were persons diagnosed with a serious and devastating skin condition that forced them to be isolated from society. And so for Jesus to engage with a leper was a big deal. It was highly outrageous and controversial, but... As controversial as it was for Jesus to engage with a leper, it was even more controversial for him to engage with a tax collector. And as far as Levi is concerned, okay, there were great risks associated with him saying yes to Jesus. He accepted the call to become Jesus' disciple, even though he knew he would lose his job and never be able to get it back. He burned bridges. And so... He decided to follow Jesus, knowing that there will be no turning back. And becoming a tax collector cost him his identity as a Jew. Becoming a disciple of Jesus cost him his job. He even received a new name. And if you read the Gospel of Matthew, um, Levi ends up getting a new name called Matthew. And so here's where we are. You guys with me? Just laying the foundations, right? Levi, tax collector, Everybody hates him. Jesus, awesome rabbi, calls him to be his disciple. Oh my goodness, what is Jesus doing? This is outrageous. This is scandalous. This is controversial. Boom. So just when you thought Jesus couldn't get any more controversial, what happens next will absolutely prove us wrong. Levi, he's super excited and he's super grateful to be a disciple of Jesus. So what he does is he says, Jesus, hey, come over to my house. And I'm going like, to put on a party and a dinner party for you. And guess what? Jesus accepts the invite. And as Jesus reclined at table, look at verse 15, it lets us know that many Tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. What this verse makes clear is that this was no small kind of private dinner party um, with Levi, with Levi, Jesus' his disciples, and just no, it was a dinner party with lots of food, lots of drink. Entertaining, entertaining music and lots of people Levi excited about his new way of life invites some of his friends to this dinner party and the goal and the purpose is he wants them to meet Jesus he wants them to meet this awesome rabbi who has changed his life and who's changing the life of many people in that city And this guest list is made up of other tax collectors and a people group described as what? Speak to me! Sinners, Sinners. exactly. This people group, described here as sinners, were Jews who did not follow the law or have any interest in religious things. They were viewed as rebels, okay? They had no piety. They had no interest in observing the Sabbath, no interest in attending services at the synagogue and reading religious writings. They were heavily influenced by uh, culture and lived their life, lives, lives lives, based on cultural narratives and followed the, cus- the customs of the day rather than the details of the law. And these sinners, right, that category, they could be prostitutes, Tax collectors, of course, criminals, alcoholics, pimps, junkies, lepers, the homeless, you name it. These good-for-nothing and scums of society, right? So the Jewish religious leaders saw them, are the people Jew, Jesus is hanging out with and sharing a meal with. And back then, okay? To share a meal with someone, to have dinner with someone, wasn't about the food. Okay, It was less about the food and more about the relationship. We're going to look at that a bit more later. And so, all seemed to be going well. Everyone seemed to be having a good time eating and drinking and listening to Jesus teach with authority. Overall, the dinner party hosted by Levi was a success Absolute success back, but there was at the party a group of people who were unhappy. They're described in verse 16 as the scribes of the Pharisees. And we're familiar with um, these because they first appeared um, on the scene not long ago when um, they had an issue with Jesus forgiving sins. And they're still unhappy with Jesus. This time, they're unhappy with the fact that Jesus is sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners. Look at verse 16 again. It says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The word Pharisee here is derived from a Hebrew word meaning separated one. Pharisees had a hardcore and at the same time unhealthy commitment to the law. They taught, interpreted, and argued about um, the scriptures. They were known for um, careful, pious, and holy living according to the laws of the Torah. And they believed this. They believed that nearness to God was based on a person's success in keeping the law and separating themselves from anyone who was uh, a riffraff of society. So according to the Pharisees, to maintain moral purity, to be considered holy, meant distancing oneself from sinners. And so they were separatist. They were like, hey, you can't associate with sinners. You can't associate with anyone who's not as religious and as pious as us. In the time of Jesus, to eat with someone was less about food and more about relationship. In other words, to share a meal with others was an expression of friendship. As one scholar said this, it will be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the first century. times were far more than an occasion for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. In other words, who you eat with or who you don't eat with is a display of who is your friend and who is not your friend. And so in view of this, it was unheard for and it was scandalous for someone like Jesus to eat with tax collectors and sinners. To the Pharisees, who you ate with or who you didn't eat with was symbolic of who was in and who was out and who was holy and who was unholy. So this is a big deal, what's happening here. It's highly controversial. And it's no surprise that they are outraged By Jesus sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners. And we know this because during the party, they approached Jesus' disciples and asked the following question. Hey, like, why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees, what they were doing in that culture was they were using a meal to exclude people from the presence of God But Jesus does the opposite. He uses a meal as an occasion to draw people into the presence of God. Jesus is communicating something absolutely significant here by his actions. And so when Jesus hears about the murmurings and complaints and that they had issues with him eating with sinners, he says to them in verse 17... Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In the same way doctors must be with those who are sick, God's heart and passion is to be with sinners. And sinners are people who recognize their need for a savior. And so... What does this all mean for us? This is what it means. Number one, Jesus is still in the business of pursuing and calling the people that are most undeserving because of his grace. Jesus' grace is available for those in our culture Those in our society who we view or many people view as undeserving of his grace. Levi was a tax collector and he was absolutely hated by the Jewish community. And this possibly, like I said, included Jesus' disciples. And so in Jesus calling someone in society who is so hated and he's like the scum of society, what Jesus is communicating is that there is no one who is beyond God's grace. I know, you know, people that you meet for the first time every week. And that you possibly have a relationship with. That you're thinking to yourself, there is no way. There is no way God's grace is powerful and enough for them. They are plain, just bad and wicked and evil. There's no way God will have mercy on them. So what this is telling us, if Jesus is able to call and save someone like Levi, Jesus is able and absolutely powerful enough to call and save anyone you know that you think is far, way far from God. And so an encouragement for us is, trust God, have faith to believe that those who you know that you think are too far from God, God is absolutely able to save them. And this is not just here. If you look throughout the New Testament, oh, there are so many people that you think just, man, there's just there's no hope for this person. But God is able. He absolutely is. Next, Jesus not only calls the undeserving, but uses them for his greater purposes. Earlier I mentioned that Levi became Matthew, and we all know who Matthew is. Matthew ended up writing, compiling one of the Gospels about Jesus. And it's amazing how this individual who was greedy for money, possibly dishonest, hated by his own community. Jesus calls him, Jesus saves him, and Jesus doesn't say, hey, like, you've done too many bad things, and I can only kind of just have you as my friend. No, Jesus calls him, saves him, and uses him powerfully. Jesus saw the flawed life of um, Levi, the tax collector, and he ended up, Saving him, transforming him, and using him to write one of the biographies of Jesus. Next, as followers of Jesus, we're not called to isolation, but we're called to be on mission. And being on mission, okay, as a church, is us intentionally pursuing and maintaining relationships with those who need Jesus Right, as a church community we're huge on helping people helping all of us mature in Christ and there's this beautiful family kind of vibe we have here at Kings Cross Church, we love it it's absolutely amazing and we hang out and we encourage each other and we have community groups and we have um, Friendsgiving coming up and even after the service today we're having a farewell for Adam and all of those, we do a lot together and the tendency or um, the temptation is for us to prioritize these good times of fellowship and intimacy together, which is good for us and we need it. We can get so caught up and concerned about ourselves, we never look out and reach out to those who need Jesus. And so as a church, we're not only maturing followers of Jesus, we are encouraging everyone to make followers, and disciples of Jesus. That is why we're huge on always reminding each other that we're not just here in this city to make money and be successful and have a good career. Man, if you look around you, there are hundreds of thousands of people in this city that do not know Jesus, that absolutely need Jesus. And our goal is not to just cave in and get into our Christian hurdles, that's helpful, really helpful, strengthens us. But our, our goal is to also be on the lookout and to be intentional about reaching those and um, sharing the gospel with those God has put in our lives. And so we want to be intentional. We don't want to isolate. We want to be on mission, Lastly, in the same way doctors must be Um, with those who are sick to heal them, Jesus came to cure our heart problem, the problem of our sin. And the story of Jesus' encounter with Levi shows us God's heart for sinners like you and I. And this story is so fascinating because there are two groups of people here in this passage. Okay, The good guys and the bad guys. The good guys are the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. They looked faultless. In religious terms, and the bad guys are made up of people like Levi, the tax collectors, and his friends. And the question is okay, the question is if we hadn't read this and you didn't know anything about Jesus, and all you knew about Jesus was he was a rabbi um, who taught the scriptures, the question is who would you expect Jesus to want to spend time with? Honestly, who would you expect? And if I'm honest with myself, right, and I didn't know this story and I didn't understand God's heart, I would absolutely think, of course Jesus, the rabbi, wants to hang out with the people that are, you know, also reading the scriptures and going to this. Absolutely. Why would Jesus want to, like, hang out with bad people? He doesn't want to do that. The religious types... We're shocked that Jesus has chosen to have a meal with tax collectors and their friends. Surely, he should be be with the religious, not the rebels. But listen again, right, to what Jesus says in verse 17. This is not a coincidence or a mistake. This is intentional. He says this. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus... Is at Levi's house on business. And his business is to be the doctor for the spiritually sick. He hasn't come for those who think they are spiritually fit, but for those who know that they are spiritually sick. He says, if you think you're good, this is what Jesus is saying, if you think you're good, if you think you're spiritually healthy, then you will not think you need me. Just as healthy people don't need doctors, so people who think they're good don't need Jesus. The qualification for coming to Jesus is not being good enough, but realizing that you're not good enough. And this is what makes the gospel so amazing and so precious. Jesus is saying, hey, like... It's interesting in the story, um, when Levi invited Jesus to go to his house, Jesus didn't say, hey, like, can you, are you okay? Like, you just got kind of saved. I want to see you kind of prove yourself before I come and have dinner with you. No. Jesus received the invite. And so in the same way, Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling. And Jesus is still in the business of pursuing sinners like you and I and we all have a heart problem and Jesus is the one that provided the solution for a heart problem and the cure was his perfect life that he lived in our place his devastating death that he died and he died for us and he didn't stay in the grave three days later he rose again And so through Jesus' life, death and burial, he provided the cure and the solution for our heart problem. Jesus is still in the business of pursuing the lost. And you and I, if you're here and you're a Christian, the reality is that Jesus has saved you and he's not only saved you, but he's called you to be on mission for him. You are Right? A a, a living and breathing testimony of God's power to save. And it's amazing that this story, this true story about Levi and his encounter with Jesus, was written thousands of years ago. And it's amazing for us to recognize that, man, Jesus is still alive and he's still transforming and saving and changing lives. Not just our lives. But today, we have the privilege of hearing a real-life testimony, um, a real-life story of someone whose life has been changed by Jesus, just like Levi, um, someone who got called by Jesus in our midst today, and he's going to come and share his story of how Jesus saved him and called him, and his name is Adam Henley. Put your hands together for him. <laughs>
1: Hey everyone, uh, is this okay? What I want to do, I was just thinking about this as I was, you know, we were all listening. I'm going to come a little closer because, if I can, you know, I don't even really need this, that's fine. here fine, that's fine. All right, I wanted to just come a little closer because it can feel so distant when we're like, like, person talking, and I'm not saying, it's not about you, it's just in life, it's how it is, you know, person talking, people listening, and uh, it can be very impersonal sometimes, not saying Obed is, because he's great. Um, And if I cry, uh, maybe cry with me a little bit. Um, I'm already about to. But, um, sorry, this is going to be hard. So I only have like 15 minutes, so this is going to be really hard. All right, so a little bit about me. I grew up in a family of nine, like seven kids, you know, two parents. Um, So four brothers and two sisters. I'm number five. Um, I was the youngest of all the sons. So my oldest brother's twins uh, beat up on the next one. He would beat up the guy. And I was the fifth son, and I had two sisters, so I can't beat them up. You know, so I always got beat up and never had anyone to beat up. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of thankful for that because God is kind of, I'm like, I think of um, Solomon. He was, he had a nickname, uh, Jedediah, I think, beloved of the Lord, you know, and Sorry. You know, I, I, I come up here and I'm, I'm like debating all day what to say, what not to say. And we, um, Obed's not from the United States. Um, some of us may not be from here, but most of us probably are. And in our context, in our world, we have, uh, we, we have temptations that we, that are, are present around us. Um, we can tend to grow up a normal American life. Most of us go to public school and just be affected by the world we're in. Um, Satan is clever, and uh, as, you know, Obed pointed out, tax collectors and sinners. Something that I remembered uh, briefly, and then I'll get to a little bit more more content about everything. Uh, Jesus came in John 9, he says, um, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So it's kind of like a parallel to this passage. Um, and that was me. So for a lot of my teenage years, I grew up in church. Um, I thought I was saved per se when I was like 12. I came forward at an altar call, um, but I do not think I had the power of God uh, in me, and was I didn't think that, I look back and I think uh though God was ministering to me and drawing me to himself I can't say that I can I can't truly say I was, I think I was saved. Um and and yet God still taught me so much about himself and was pouring like planting seeds in me through my youth pastor. Um and then I mean so basically I I can say broadly um, as I joined in the military God used us uh, uh, he used some of the um, so there was this thing where I remember reading the website of the Navy and thinking wow what a community what an honorable thing this might be that I joined and then a- after I joined when life got so stressful in the training I tended to um, fall into sinful patterns in my life that I had tried to supposedly overcome. Uh, but this was not with the power of God. And when I talked about the patterns of this world, I mean, that's not the way I said it, but, you know, the thing I debated about, we can be so afraid of sin and that we will not and I, I'm not praising the evil things that go on in the world. So I don't even really want to give voice to that, except that, we who are forgiven are so, so forgiven. It's like nothing. I mean, what I, uh, what I will read is from Isaiah 55. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. It's kind of paralleling uh, John. Jesus went to the woman at the well. Um, he saw that she was thirsty. You know, and I look to my life, and uh, as a human, in many ways, my heart and everything, I'm thirsty. Um, and I was thirsty, and and we all are thirsty. I mean, like we are. And he's saying, "I ha- I am living water. Drink me." And then, and then another thing in John three, he says, um, "The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil." And that was me. I mean, we can all look at ourselves and point out, "Oh, that that secret or that that worst sin." We think of ourselves as as uh, that's what makes me a sinner. That thing or these five things or whatever. And then we're like, if we have if we have the power of God to have repentance from that thing, we think, oh, now I'm not dealing with that sin. And as Obed said, we have still need of that physician. Um, so he says here, and after that, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And that, But this is the hope here. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. Comes to the light. He's saying, come into this light. Uh, come into me. He is the light of the world. And so... Here, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, God has given me this hope that when I do come into the light, that, um, I mean, with people, you know, if you're at your workplace and you're talking like this, you're not going to get the same kind of, like, openness to share things. That's true. It's the world, and it's, one, it's where we are. But, um but even sometimes in a, in a congregation, you might not always at the same time feel uh, so so open or able to share what you're struggling with, um, and and uh, and expect not to be in some sense either mocked or or put to shame or anything like that. But with God, though, definitely, and, and I don't say that that's okay. I think God wants to work that out. And but what I could say though is is that. It is the case, though, with God that we, we come to him and we're not going to be belittled because he knows we're weak. Uh, he knows I'm weak. I, um, in some ways, yeah, God seriously helped me to overcome certain kinds of sin that I was involved in as a teenager. Uh, but there are so many others that God is still showing me. Um, and I don't even know. And I want to be shown. I mean, that's kind of like the hope that God has given me, is that instead of, oh, I'm so afraid of uh, that. I'm that I, ha- I have a flesh and that I am affected by the world and Satan is out there trying to destroy. Uh, instead of being afraid that that those all those things are true and having, and a lot of so much of this is unscripted. So I'm just sharing yeah where I am, but. This hope that God has given me is that, an example, right now, um, I'm. Hmm, how much do I even say? I'm depending on God to eventually, hopefully, one day, be married. And a friend of mine's parents aren't easily being receptive of me, and it's not an easy thing. But my hope isn't in that. My hope isn't in human relationships. My hope is in Jesus who has called me to himself. And he says, he'll never leave me or forsake me. And that's us. I mean, relatedly, I can imagine many of us probably have some financial issues where it's not enough or we're just sometimes not good enough uh, in the world. And I, I was talking with Um, with Blake a few minutes ago and I remember this connection that I think it's in Hebrews where he says do not love money for I will never leave you or forsake you I mean we 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 could identify 5, 10, 15, 100 struggles and yet the bottom line is that we have this physician we have We have this living water. We have this Jesus who is patient. And as as Obed, he's like, hey, here's the gospel. And in Mark Mark chapter 1, the very first verse, the gospel of God. um, The thing about the gospel is that we, we, for what it's worth, I'm just going to I'm going to say it because I think it's God leading me, that we stop at the fact that Jesus rose again. And that's true. There's power over death. But also he rose, he ascended. He talked to, Paul says he was seen by more than 500 people in 1 Corinthians 15. Seen by like more than 500 people. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that actually means something. It means that he's doing stuff. You and I, we're sitting here, we're, we're sharing this time. But we're not alone in it because... Jesus is said to be sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's king, and he's doing stuff. He's ruling and reigning, and like he's working against the dark forces in the world. And so, um, know that. I, I, I hope that all who are thirsty, we would come to him, that we are struggling with stuff, and I still am. Uh, yet, I was justified, but I am being sanctified. It's, just, it's happening, and we all we who are his children are, he's, he's leading us this way. And so I, I think what I'm trying to encourage you with, just to finish is, I just have to leave it at the fact that he's, as much as you and I can think look at each other, we're doing stuff, we're living our lives, there also Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, actually um, probably breathing. I mean, he's a human, he's a, the God-man, you know, Doing stuff, uh, he says to Peter once, "I have prayed for your faith, Satan desires to sift you, but I have prayed for you that you will return to me. and I think that that's what Jesus probably continues to do as our high priest. He continues to pray for us to to ask of the Father, May I come down there to them yet, May I come, May I come rescue them?" And the father's like, Not yet, I'm still working by my Holy Spirit." to draw them to me so just remember that he's actually doing stuff in your life right now in my life too so uh yeah thank you and it's a lot of it's not a complete story i'd love to get to know you guys more and text me and all that stuff too so anyway thank you